If you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, please turn with, the, with me into to, uh, Matthew chapter 29. We're taking a bit of a pause from our study of the book of Romans. I know we're right in the middle of it, uh, but it seemed like a great place for us to pause and consider some of the actions of Jesus Christ during Holy Week. Uh, we will get back to Romans chapter 8 and cover the last few verses, the few, last few triumphant verses of Romans chapter 8 after Easter. But this morning I thought it would be a great time for us to just meditate on Jesus and to think on Jesus during this Holy Week. We don't celebrate all the days of Holy Week, uh, but today is Palm Sunday. We're talking about the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem in Matthew 21. Um, we are going to be celebrating, we don't celebrate Ash Wednesday or Monday, Thursday or any of that, but we are going to be celebrating Good Friday. I want to encourage you to come back out 7 o'clock Friday night as we contemplate the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And we spend an evening just thinking on that. And then, of course, on Sunday morning, we'll celebrate the resurrection together. But for me, my celebration of Resurrection Sunday always seems to be more potent when I spend Friday evening considering the cross, contemplating what Jesus endured for those whom he came to save. And so I want to encourage you to come back out Friday evening for that and then join us Sunday morning as we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. And so in Matthew 21, the first 11 verses is what we're going to look at this morning. Um, in this passage, we see the story of Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. This is one of those rare stories in the Gospels that's in all four Gospel accounts. It's in Matthew, as we'll read from today, but it's also in Mark and Luke and John, and that's pretty rare. We will see the crowds as they lay their palm branches, as they lay down their cloaks, as they shout, Hosanna to the Son of David. But we'll also see Jesus. And that's the primary thing that we need to consider. That needs to be the focus of our attention this morning. We'll look at the crowd, but we'll focus on Jesus. We will behold Jesus. And so let's read together Matthew 21, the first 11 verses. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage, to the Mount of Olives... Then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, that is, into Jerusalem, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. 
And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for your holy word. We thank you for those portions of scripture, like we're currently in the middle of a study of Romans. We thank you for those portions of scripture that give us such doctrinal truths and theological understanding of who you are and what the gospel means. We're thankful also for these narrative accounts, particularly the narrative accounts of your son. In the gospels we find the story of your son Jesus Christ as he is ushered into our physical world, as he walks the face of this earth, loving and teaching and healing. And as he walks into Jerusalem, ultimately toward Golgotha and the cross, we thank you for this narrative portion that we read this morning. And we pray, Lord, that you would speak to us through it. God, I pray for every person in this room, wherever they are, whatever circumstances you have them in, Pray, Lord, that you'd meet them right in the middle of that with the hope that we find in a passage of Scripture like this. So speak to your church. Awaken the unbeliever here. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the setting of this story is that a few verses earlier in chapter 19, the beginning of chapter 19, Jesus leaves Galilee. Now, Galilee, for a long time, had been Jesus' center of operations. It's where he began his teaching and preaching ministry, and he gained great notoriety there. It's where he healed a lot of people, performed many miracles there. And as a result, he gained quite a following. But at the beginning of chapter 19, he leaves that. He leaves this center of operations. He leaves this, what we would call, a very successful ministry. And he begins to head toward Judea. Now on the way down to Judea, he kind of takes a circuitous route. He goes closer to the Sea of Galilee, closer to uh, the Jordan River. He comes up on Jericho and he performs some more miracles in Jericho. In fact, just prior to this story in chapter 21, at the end of chapter 20, he heals two blind men right outside of Jericho. While he's in Jericho, we see the story in, the, in, in Luke's gospel account of him going to the house of Zacchaeus, the tax collector, and hanging out with sinners and preaching the gospel to them. And as a result of this and as a result of the healing of the blind men, the crowd grows even larger. But there are lots of things that happen during this time frame that aren't covered in Matthew's gospel account. Most of these occur in a town called Bethany, It's a small little village, maybe two miles from Jerusalem. And and Bethany becomes the place where he goes after he leaves Jericho. He's on the way to Jerusalem, and he kind of sets up shop in Bethany. And he hangs out in Bethany for a while, and that's kind of his outpost. And he begins to travel to and from Jerusalem, from Bethany, doing lots of different things as we see in Matthew, but also in other gospel accounts. The woman caught in adultery in John chapter 8 occurs during this time. And that that scene takes place on the streets of Jerusalem. Jesus had been out in the Mount of Olives and he comes back into 
the city. In John chapter 10, when Jesus hears about his friend Lazarus, who had died, he hears about it while he's in Jerusalem. He's in Solomon's colonnade, colonnade, his Solomon's portico, teaching and preaching in the temple. And he hears about Lazarus, and he goes to the home of Martha, and then he raises Lazarus from the dead. That happens in Bethany. And then he stays there, and, and the anointing of Jesus by Mary takes place in Bethany during this time. So a lot of times we have this perception that Jesus left Galilee. He headed straight to Jerusalem, and this is the first time he went into Jerusalem. It's not. He had been coming and going from Bethany to Jerusalem often for quite a while. But this time is different. This time he's entering Jerusalem for good. Because this time he's going to stay in Jerusalem. This will be the last time that he enters into Jerusalem. The next time that he leaves to Jerusalem, it will be with a cross on his back as he heads out to Golgotha to be crucified. So up to this point, Jesus had been very secretive about his identity. He had referred to himself prior to this as the Son of Man, which was kind of his veiled, coded way of referring to himself as fulfillment of the messianic prophecy. But it was veiled and it was, it was kind of coded. And he was keeping his identity a secret. But now he openly allows the people to both treat him as king and refer to him now as the son of David. A very obvious reference to the promised Messiah for the Jews. Why does he allow this? Because this is the final week of his earthly ministry. This is the final week of his earthly life. He was going to return, and when he returned, he would return as a conquering king. And so now he allows the people to begin to call him the son of David, King David, son of the king, fulfillment of the prophecy. He allows this to happen now. So now he's being more open and public about who he is and, and why he has come. But that's going to cause some problems for him. The fact that he's allowing himself to be seen as the son of David and his, his identity is kind of coming out more public. He's allowing people to see not just who he is, but why he came. That's going to cause some problems for him. Problems that we know are under the sovereignty of God. Problems that are in a line with what God's will for Jesus was and what Jesus' plan was. But they will cause problems for him nonetheless. Being paraded into Jerusalem like we see this morning in this passage as a king, the king of the Jews, is dangerous for one's health. Because this is a city that is occupied by an imperial army, the Roman army, and ruled by Caesar. And being paraded into this fortified city as a king, a competing king, is dangerous for one's health. Especially when the first thing that you do after entering into the city is you go to the temple and you turn over the tables of the money changers, which is what happens immediately after this, as Jesus gets in the way of and, and messes around with the religious elites means of vocation 
their livelihood. He turns over their tables. And we begin to see, after this triumphal entry, a a rise in the conflict between Jesus and the religious elite. And this conflict, as we know, will intensify throughout this week and will conclude ultimately at the cross. But for now, this morning in this passage, we take this opportunity to behold Jesus, the Son of David, as he's paraded into Jerusalem as the king that he truly is, even if this scene is not fully understood by the crowd and by the people in Jerusalem, it's understood by us. And so I think that we are meant to worship Jesus as we see him this morning, as we see him in this passage, we are meant to worship him. But not as the crowd did. I want us to observe primarily Jesus this morning, but before we do, I want to I spend a few moments observing the crowd together. The crowd that surrounds Jesus as he enters Jerusalem. This is a crowd that's been growing for some time now. The crowd began during his very successful ministry in Galilee. As he began to preach as one who was different, as one who had authority, not as the scribes and Pharisees did as he began to perform miracles that nobody else had performed, as he began to heal people that nobody else could heal. In his ministry in and around the Sea of Galilee, he he gained, gained great notoriety. And as Jesus, as we saw in chapter 19, leaves Galilee and begins to travel to Jerusalem, he's joined by a large crowd, Matthew tells us. A large crowd follows him. Now, part of that crowd is the crowd that he gained during his ministry there around the Sea of Galilee. The crowd that was there because of what he was teaching, the crowd that was there because of his miracles, all of this. Part of the crowd, though, as he makes his way from Jericho, now through Bethany and on into Jerusalem, part of the crowd is, is the, are the religious pilgrims that are traveling to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. That's what this time was. They were traveling to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. They were on their way there. And and, and the crowd grew even more as he leaves Jericho and he heals these two blind men. But this crowd didn't have the time of day for them. This crowd was on their religious pilgrimage. And they didn't have any time for the needy cries of these two blind men. In fact, if you go back and you read that story, they rebuke the blind man. And they try to silence the blind man. Because after all, they're with Jesus of Nazareth. They're they're with the miracle worker, and they didn't have any time to waste on blind men. But Jesus did. In fact, they didn't even want Jesus to be distracted from going to Jerusalem by healing these blind men. And I think that should be the first clue to us that something's wrong with this crowd. And perhaps their expectations of Jesus don't perfectly align with Jesus' plan. So now we see the crowd again in chapter 21. And what are they doing? They're taking off their cloaks. And they're putting their cloaks on the ground. They're, They're putting palm branches down. They're honoring him. They're serving him as king. They're honoring and praising Jesus, shouting accolades at him. So what do we learn from that? Well, I think 
on one hand, we can say that, that the content of their actions are exemplary, even if the motivations for those actions are not exemplary. But the content of their actions, what they're doing is good and worthy uh, uh, of being an example to follow. They lay their cloaks on the ground in front of Jesus. Now that's weird. That's odd. I don't know if you've ever done this. I've, I've never laid my outer garments on the ground in front of a person riding on a donkey. If I had the opportunity to, I probably wouldn't. Why would you do that? Why would you put your outer garment on the ground to get dirty and to get ridden on by a donkey? Well, this was a sign of royalty. In 2 Kings chapter 9, we see this as a way of welcoming the king back into town. You'd lay your garments down on the road. The palm branches were the same thing. It was a way of paying homage to royalty as they proceeded by. This was a royal procession. And so they were serving him as king. But they were also worshiping him as king. This wasn't just them serving, they were worshiping. They were singing a song to him or, or singing a song about him. Actually, verse 9 says that they were shouting this song. It was, it was loud. Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. They were shouting this song about Jesus. The word Hosanna was an Aramaic expression. It was a, it was a joyful expression of praise to God for his saving mercies for Israel. It, it, the, the modern day equivalent would be praise God. That, that would be the equivalent. Praise God. Praise the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Praise God in the highest. And he referred to them, they referred to him as son of David, which we've said is a, a title specifically referring to the promised Messiah, a title that the two blind men used when they referred to Jesus right before this, when they cried out to Jesus, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. They were exalting Jesus as the Messiah, the promised king of the Jews. This is why when we read Luke's account of this, the Pharisees, having overheard the crowd exalting Jesus as the Jewish Messiah, they rebuke Jesus and they, tell, they, they say, Jesus, you need to rebuke them and you need to silence them for calling you this. And if you read, you read that account, you know that Jesus says, listen, if I silence them, the rocks will cry out. Why? Because shouts of worship and praise were going to come from somewhere. So we should note, first off, that Jesus doesn't stop them from laying their cloaks down and putting their palm branches down in front of him and treating him as royalty, treating him as the king. That he, he doesn't stop them, and he doesn't stop them from shouting, Son of David, Hosanna, Son of David, because he is worthy of this praise. He is the king, and the king is coming. So even though the crowd didn't fully understand who Jesus was and what he came to do and what all this meant, they didn't understand all of that, and full implications of that, yet the content of their actions are exemplary. This is what he deserves. But the motivations 
or not exemplary? What, what were their motivations? Why were they so excited? Why were they so celebratory? Who did they think Jesus really was? And furthermore, what did they expect from him? Well, they thought he was a king. They were treating him as a king. So, that, so, that, so they thought he was a king. They wanted him to be their king. But they misunderstood his kingdom. That his kingdom is not of this world, at least not yet of this world. They wanted Jesus to assume the throne of King David, but they wanted him to assume that throne now because Israel needed help now. They were occupied by a foreign force, an invading army, and they were waiting for what Simeon was waiting for. When Jesus, remember when Jesus was presented at the temple a few days after his birth, Simeon was there waiting for what? The consolation of Israel, the comforting of Israel. That's what they're waiting for because Israel needed that consolation and they needed it now. And so they wanted a revolution. They wanted an overthrow of this government, an ousting of the Roman army and the reestablishment of Israel to her former glory. That's what they wanted of Jesus, and that's what they expected of Jesus. And, and as long as it looked like that was where Jesus was headed with all this, they were going to serve him as king, and they were going to worship him as king. But as soon as it became clear to the crowd that he was not going to overthrow Rome, at least not according to their timetable, they dropped him like a bad habit. So as long as Jesus met their expectations and did what they expected him to do and did for them what, he, what, what they wanted him to do for them, they were behind him 100%. But as soon as they realized that perhaps he was not going to be the God that they expected him to be, he wasn't going to do what they expected him to do, their shouts of acclamation became shouts of animosity. Instead of yelling Hosanna, later this week, they began shouting, crucify him. So what lesson do we learn from the crowd? Here's the lesson that we learn from this crowd. That Jesus is worthy of us serving him and worshiping him simply because of who he is. Not because he meets our expectations and not because he does anything for us but simply because of who he is. I think it's possible for us to follow suit with this crowd and create expectations of Jesus that he will not and should not meet. We talk a lot and bemoan a lot the effect of preachers of the prosperity gospel that work so diligently to create an environment where people are expecting that Jesus will meet their every need, their financial need, their health needs, all of that. But we know that this is a false expectation of Jesus, and he will not and should not meet those expectations. But if that's what people expect of him, then when he doesn't meet those expectations, then they'll be like the crowd here and they will abandon Jesus. 
But perhaps what's more prevalent in the church today, outside of the crazy prosperity gospel circles, is that sometimes we create a savior of our own making as well. And it doesn't look much like the Jesus of the Bible. Instead, it looks more like a picture of Jesus as our moral example or as our therapeutic counselor. It's a picture of Jesus that's not true. We ask the question, what would Jesus do? I've asked that question. You may have asked that question as well. There's nothing wrong with that question. But if that's all we learn about Jesus, then he's simply our moral example, not a savior. You've probably heard the phrase, Jesus helps me to be the best possible version of myself. Or Jesus is there to help me feel better about myself. Both of these sayings simply tell us a lie about who Jesus is and what he came to do. Jesus didn't come to do either of those things. He came to seek and to save the lost. He didn't come primarily to heal and perform miracles as he did. I believe he primarily healed people because he, his heart of compassion was overflowing with mercy and he had to do something about it. And he was demonstrating who he was. But that's not primarily why he came. He came to seek and to save the lost by dying on a cross. That was his purpose. That was his goal. So those, those things are false expectations of Jesus. We've been walking through Paul's letter to the Romans. And in Romans chapter 8, we've been unpacking some, pa- some challenging passages of Scripture. We've been learning how God is sovereign over suffering. He's sovereign over the things that cause us pain and hurt and discouragement. He is sovereign over them in that somehow they fit within his overall plan to do good to his people and to bring glory to himself. But that's hard for us to wrestle with. Why? Why is that hard for us to wrestle with? Because somewhere deep down, we have some false expectations of God. We've we've created a Jesus of our own making, a Jesus that is not going to allow us to experience pain, that's not going to allow us to experience rejection or hurt or suffering. And that Jesus isn't in the Bible. That God isn't in the Bible. So those things are false expectations. The problem is when, not if, but when Jesus doesn't meet those false and wrong expectations, then we'll either be like this crowd here and we'll abandon Jesus or we will shrink into depression and discouragement in our spiritual life because we'll think that Jesus has abandoned us. Neither of which is true. It's just that we have created some false expectations of him. And worse yet, We have made our worship of him contingent on him meeting our false expectations. Again, Jesus is worthy of us serving him and worshiping him and loving him and honoring him and laying our proverbial branches on the ground in front of him, not because of any expectations that we have of him that he has met and not because of anything that he has done for us, but simply because of who he is. He is king and he is coming. He is coming. 
So let's move from observing the crowd now to observing Jesus. Let's observe the king now as we see the king entering into Jerusalem riding on a donkey on top of palm branches and coats in the ground. We learn three things about him. First of all, in this picture of Jesus riding into Jerusalem, we see a picture of humility. We see a picture of humility. We see this in the kind of animal that he chooses to ride in on. He rides in on a donkey. Now, we would expect a king to ride in on something else, something other than a donkey, right? Maybe a chariot. Maybe like the Ethiopian VIP that Philip meets with in Acts chapter 8, right? Chariots are for important people. Chariots are the kinds of things that kings and queens and their VIPs ride in on. And usually, they didn't even drive them themselves. They had a cohort with them. Someone was driving the chariot for them, pampering to their every whim. But not Jesus. Not Jesus. And he is the king of the universe. If there ever there was anyone that deserved a chariot ride into his city, it's Jesus. But that's not his style. It's not how he rolls. His M.O.? His M.O. is self-sacrifice and humility. Humility. This is what Jesus has been driving home to his disciples over the last few chapters, teaching them not only about his own humility, but teaching them that following him is the way of humility. Back in chapter 18, he, he said, listen, if you want to be great in my kingdom, become like this little child. Humble yourself like a little child. He takes the child, puts, his, puts the child on his knee. He says, if you want to be great in the kingdom, humble yourself like this little child. Children were not esteemed highly in that culture. They were looked down upon and they were ignored. Jesus says, if you want to be great in my kingdom, humble yourself like this little child. Become one who is not esteemed greatly. Become one that is easily set aside and ignored. That's greatness in my kingdom. Later in that same chapter, chapter 18, he gives us the parable of the unmerciful servant. And as he explains this to his disciples, he teaches that we should have the humility to extend mercy to those who owe us something. Whether it's a payment like the unmerciful servant or whether it's an offense, that we should extend mercy to those who owe us something. But that requires humility something that the unmerciful servant had a very low supply of. And he was unmerciful because he was prideful. He couldn't bring himself to that point. In chapter 19, he gave the story of the rich young ruler, talked to the rich young ruler, and afterwards he was explaining this to his disciples. And he said this, he says, it is only with great difficulty for the wealthy to enter the kingdom of heaven. Why? Because wealth and riches makes us great in the world's eyes, but not great in God's eyes. Humility is the way of following Jesus. In the previous chapter, chapter 20, he gave the parable of the laborers in the vineyard. And some of them get, get paid a certain amount because they started early in the morning. And then the ones that started almost like an hour towards quitting time, they got the exact same thing and they were upset. And they wonder, what in the world is going on here? Jesus used that parable to drive home the point that he had just taught, which is, the last shall be first, and the first shall be last. 
And then later in that same chapter, we have the squabble between James and John, the sons of Zebedee, right? Refereed by their mother. They want to, be, they want to know who's going to be greatest in the kingdom. Who's going, to, who's going to sit in to your right? Who's going to sit to your left? They want the positions of prominence. There's no humility in them, right? They want positions of prominence in the kingdom. And Jesus says, you have no idea what you're asking. That's how the Gentiles rule, but not so with you. With you, whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This donkey-riding king is a picture of humility. This is not some noble chariot. This is a humble beast of burden. This is a working man's donkey. The way of following Jesus is the way of humility. It is not the way that is esteemed highly by our culture and by our society, but it is the way of following Jesus. And so if you're wanting to genuinely follow Jesus, church, if you're wanting to follow him, please expect your pride to be assaulted at every turn. Because the humility of Jesus, Jesus' kind of humility that we see here, just example of here, is diametrically opposed to the pride of our flesh. And because this is the way of following Jesus, here's the good news. He gives us not just the picture of humility, but he gives us the hope for humility. The gospel is good news, not just because it gives us an example to follow in Jesus' humility, but beyond that, the gospel is good news because it is our very hope in battling for humility in our own lives and our battle against pride. Because Jesus defeated sin and death, we who have placed our faith in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, we are saved from the penalty that we deserve because of our pride. But beyond that, we have hope now that the kind of humility that we see exampled in Jesus that kind of humility being forged in us, we have hope of that now. Because he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ. We have hope that this kind of humility can happen in us because he's conforming us to the image of Christ. The grace that saves is the grace that sanctifies. We are being transformed into the likeness of Jesus, including the humility of Jesus. So we see, we behold Jesus in this triumphal entry, riding on a donkey, and we see a picture of humility, but we also have the hope for humility. Secondly, we see in his entry into Jerusalem a promise of peace. Like we inferred earlier, if you or I were to write an epic story about a king entering back into his city, we'd probably have him riding on a chariot, or perhaps... In this specific instance, we'd have him riding on a war horse because that is the setting here. Israel is under foreign occupation. A foreign army has defeated them and is ruling over them. And this enemy has set up fortifications in and around Jerusalem. And if the king is going to take the city back, which is what the crowd is expecting of him, right? If the king is going to take the city back, well, we would expect him to be riding in on a war horse. 
a chariot or a war horse for a king in Scripture meant wartime and, and that the king was battle ready. But in Scripture, a king riding on a donkey meant he was coming in peace. The crowd wanted a king on a war horse ready for battle against the Roman army. But they misunderstood why Jesus was coming this first time. Jesus was coming, as prophesied, for peace. Remember the birth announcement of the angels in Luke's gospel as the angels appeared to the shepherds who were keeping watch in the field by night. Glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace. Peace among those with whom he is well pleased. Jesus does this on purpose. His, he sends the two disciples into town to get the donkey. And Matthew says, that is fulfillment of prophecy. And then he quotes from Zechariah chapter 9. Verse 9 of that passage of prophecy says this, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. This is Zechariah prophesying about the coming king of Israel, the Old Testament Messiah, who would come in peace. So the king coming here on a donkey meant he was bringing peace. But then look at the very next verse in Zechariah chapter 9. He prophesies, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim, which is another word for Israel, and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. So verse 9 of Zechariah 9 says that he, he will come in peace, riding on a donkey. He's going to bring peace. But then verse 10 talks about a second time that he's going to come, Jesus' second coming, whereby that peace that the Messiah brings at that point will come by overthrowing all competing rulers, and Jesus will rule over all. The point is that Jesus riding into Jerusalem means he's bringing peace. And, and, and while physical, political peace will one day happen, when Jesus comes to rule in the new heaven and the new earth, praise God for that, at this point in the narrative, Jesus was purchase, purchasing a peace that was much more important and came at a much higher price. And that is our spiritual peace with God, the Father, purchased only by the blood of his son, Jesus Christ. Paul said in Colossians chapter 1, verses 19 through 22, For in him, that is in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him, that is through Jesus, to reconcile to himself, that is God, all things, whether in, on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And then he goes on to say, And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. So church, behold Jesus. Behold him riding into Jerusalem on a donkey, coats, branches laid down in front of him, being acclaimed as the son of David, son of King David. But he's also subtly telling us something in doing that. 
He's telling us that he's coming to bring peace between us and God. Apart from Jesus entering into Jerusalem and carrying his cross out the other side and being nailed to that cross and dying on that cross and being buried in a tomb and rising three days later, we would not have peace with God. We would still be enemies of God, as Scripture says. He was riding in as a king, but this king would be put to death. And he would be put to death in order to rescue those who were in rebellion against him. What an amazing grace we see on display here. This is a parade of grace, is what it is. He was riding into Jerusalem, and he knew exactly what he was riding into. In a very real way, he was riding to the cross. He was riding to Calvary. He wanted to glorify the Father that much. He loved you and I that much. He wasn't riding for the accolades of the crowd. He was riding for the worship of the glory of God, his Father. And he knew that the only way that lost people like you and I could be recreated to be the worshipers that we were created to be, the only way to accomplish that is through his substitutionary death on the cross in our place. And so on he rode. On he rode. I want you to look at him I want you to see him, not just as a picture of humility and not just as a, as a promise of peace, but thirdly, I want you to see him in his act here, a prophecy of his passion. His heading into Jerusalem was a foreshadowing of the cross. His heading into Jerusalem was a foreshadowing of what he was going to do on the other side. And as we look at him, church, we are to worship him. I think that is our response here. How how do we put feet to a passage of Scripture like this? How how do we apply a passage of Scripture like this? Many ways, but I want to give you four suggestions. And I want to encourage you to unpack these suggestions in your base group this week. First of all, as we mentioned, I think it's quite possible for us to invent a Jesus of our own making one that exists to help you have a better life, one that will always make things work out just so, one that will never let you suffer, never let you experience pain or rejection or disappointment or you fill in the blank. question for you this morning is, have you invented a Jesus of your own making? If so, then I want you to see this morning that that Jesus that you have created is not the Jesus of the Bible. The longer you have that expectation of him, then the more likely it will be that you will abandon him when he doesn't meet it. And so perhaps your response this morning needs to be just confess that and repent of that false expectation of Jesus. He is the king, and he's worthy of your worship regardless of your expectations. Secondly, I think it's equally likely that for many of us, as we behold this picture of humility in Jesus riding on a donkey, 
our own pride has been assaulted. That's a good thing. That's a good thing. As we look against the backdrop, as we look at ourselves against the backdrop of a Savior who rides into Jerusalem this final time on a donkey, and we see ourselves against that backdrop, our pride seems so ugly and so out of place. But here's the good news. Your pride and mine is part of why Jesus came. Because we're so stained with the ugliness of our sin that we could not save ourselves. And he is so jealous for our worship. His jealousy for our worship was so strong that he sent Jesus to rescue us from our pride and for what we deserve because of our pride, but then also to change us, to transform us into his likeness, to conform us to his image, that image of a humble servant of the king. And that's exactly what he promises to do with those who are his followers. Thirdly, I think we should, as a result of this news, rest in the good news that if we know Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, if we are a follower of Jesus Christ, if he has rescued us from what we deserve by grace through faith, then we have peace with God. Not because of anything that we've done, not because of any fortifications we have set up, not because of any gift that we have offered to the king to try to broker our peace. Jesus has brokered our peace for us, and he has purchased it through his shed blood on the cross. The king came in peace, and he purchased peace for you. So rest in that. But perhaps you're here this morning, and you have never placed your faith in Jesus Christ. And you recognize that you are outside the family of God and you're, you don't have peace with God because you're still trying to perform for God. I want to warn you that that is a very precarious position to be in. You do not want to meet your maker while you're still an enemy of his. The only way to peace with God is through faith in Jesus Christ and what he accomplished on the cross as your only hope. If that describes you, and I beg of you, be reconciled to God through Christ. But lastly, I think our final application here, the most obvious application, is to worship Jesus. This is a king who is worthy of our worship. He is worthy of our allegiance. We were made for this. We were made to worship him, not just with our lips, but with our lives So let's worship him, church. Resolve not just to worship him in song, but resolve to worship him with every fiber of your being. Every moment of your life, certainly we would agree that he is most deserving of that from us. So let's lay down our cloaks and our palm branches. Let's lay down the things that we own, the goals that we set, the lives that we live, just like palm branches, and let us lay them down in service and worship of this King of glory. Let's pray together.